regardless, right wing, left wing, whatever, all that nonsense. I mean, the last five, 10, 20, 30 years have been just a careening grand guignol storm. And I think, I think we're deserve, we deserve the right to laugh about it a little bit. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, two Michigan State astronomers discover that a planet-killing comet the size of Mount Everest is hurtling toward the Earth, and director Adam McKay's new sci-fi comedic drama, Don't Look Up. With only six months until the comet makes impact, they embark on a media tour to try to get the world to take the situation seriously before it's too late. In addition to Don't Look Up, Mr. McKay's credits include the feature films Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, The Big Short, and Step Brothers, and episodes of Saturday Night Live, Eastbound and Down, and the pilot episode of Succession. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. McKay gives insight into the making of Don't Look Up with fellow director Barry Jenkins. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I agree. I second that emotion. Um, so, so we were just talking uh, backstage or outside, whichever one it is, and uh, and you said something. I knew what my first statement was going to be, but then you kind of took it from me because you said this really wonderful thing. How do you make a movie? How do you dramatize the end of the world when the end of the world is actually happening? And so, and so, tell me about the process of deciding to make "Don't it. Look Up." Um. How do you make a movie about the end of the world when the end of the world is happening? That was the question. And uh, we started to scout this movie in January, February of 2019. And the COVID pandemic hit and we had to stop and we had to go home. And there's about four or five moments in your life that you can remember where reality just shuts down and seeing, and this is a weird one, seeing like the referees in an, in an NBA game come out and say, the game is done. Mm. Rudy Gobert, who was just making fun of the pandemic an hour before has COVID the game's over And that was the moment. And I'll never forget the next day I was in the scout van. We all had masks on. We were all separated. And I was calling my wife and I was like, go on the internet right now, get surgical gloves, get masks and get two oxygen tanks. And she was like laughing at me, like, you got to relax. I was like, do it, do it. And meanwhile, we're scouting this movie that is clearly inspired, I mean, it's pretty thinly disguised by the climate crisis. And for the next five months, I I just shut down. I just did nothing. I put the script on my computer and never went near it and didn't think about it. 
Well, well, talk to me about this thinly described. Um, I think it's one of the things that when I watch the film, because I try to just blank everything out about a movie, which is really hard living and working in this town. I, I, I wanted to know nothing about it. And so this idea of thinly disguising the movies about climate change, but doing it through um, the very clear and potent metaphor of a giant rock hurling towards earth. How did that come about? And then tell me about weaving that into this really wonderful balance that you're, that you're striking in the film. Yeah, that was a friend of mine or, or you know, I, for the last three years or four years or five years, I've been trying to figure out this is the biggest story in the history of Homo sapiens. It's the biggest story in 66 million years since the Chicxulub comet or asteroid hit the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's just a scientific fact that we're destroying the livable atmosphere. And I wish it wasn't the case. I'm not a liberal or a right wing when I say that, but like we really are baking ourselves at this moment. And so uh, (laughs) to live through day to day to see Taco Bell ads where there's a burrito filled with mini tacos and I want to eat that. And, and to hear, you know, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez are back together. Oh, my God. Maybe this is it. Maybe the whole second act is like these two deserve happiness. Or can Russell Westbrook play with AD and LeBron? I don't know. He's never been able to shoot the three. But like all this stuff is going on. While we're without exaggeration, empirically living through the end of, (laughs) I mean, you have to laugh. Like we're literally on the precipice of an extinction level event. And yet at the same time, and I'm part of this, I, I really want that weird creation from Taco Bell. And so the whole thing came out of this kind of, weird split of I'm part of this pop culture. I made Anchorman. I made, you know, I was head writer. You don't have to nod your head that enthusiastic. It's a dope ass movie. (laughs) Yes. I am agreeing. You made Anchorman. Yes. (laughs) So I've been a part of this and yet the reality was starting to hit me that man, we're really about to, um, so anyway, so it, it came out of that kind of duality of holy shit, and then I just have to laugh. And and I realize we haven't gotten a laugh at this. Like, we've been through shit, man. Regardless, right wing, left wing, whatever, all that nonsense. I mean, the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years have been just a careening Grand Guignol storm, and I think I think we deserve we deserve the right to laugh a, a, about it a little bit. So that 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 was a lot of the drive. That yeah yeah, and by the way, laughter is healthy. Laughter. There's a, a great book called Deep Survival. I don't know if anyone's ever read it, which is about how people survive extreme situations. And one of the number one things they have is even if they're lost at sea, lost in the woods, starving, they have a sense of humor because it means you have a perspective. And I was halfway through making the movie when I read that book. So it was not the reason for it. But um, 
But I do think it's important. And I think, you know, your movies in particular have been like really inspiring to me that you deal with really difficult, dark subjects, but you find this beauty within them that honestly, I, I mean, Barry is honestly one of my favorite directors ever. Uh, and you, uh, But, but you. the way that you meld pain and beauty is something that was very inspiring to me. Yes. However, had I made this film, it would have been the saddest movie you ever saw in your life. It would have been about the poor black migrants that are going to have to mine the fucking space rock that, uh, that, that the Tesla guy uh, gets out of the little drones. That's what it would have been. Uh, it, but, but I love that you made the film this way because that whole run you went on, Yes, the movie is just as funny as all those things. And I hope that, you know, we're sitting in this room, it's a very privileged space, that when this movie comes out, there are people who loved Anchorman who are also going to go, don't look up, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence. Shit, Anchorman, that looks funny. I'm going to go watch that. And they'll get a laugh, as you said, but hopefully they'll realize they're looking in a mirror. So tell me about not doing this the Barry Jenkins way and telling the story the Adam McKay way, because I think there is, oh my God, I'm trying to, I'm trying to really get at this in a very sharp way. People need to know about this. They need to confront this. And I think using humor the way you have in this film is a really wonderful way to do it. Are you hopeful? Are you expectant? You know, is the, is the humor, I call it the Flintstone vitamin. Was that really part and parcel of why you wanted to tell the story this way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole reason we made the movie was for what you're saying. But I think you also, as a director, and I'm sure you've experienced this with the great works you've done. uh, And with this work, you have to adjust your expectations. You have to know that there's going to be the eye rolling crowd. There's going to be the, you know, sort of calm down crowd. There's going to be, and you're ultimately, you're hoping for like 4% of the audience is like, holy fuck. And, and like, we've had some of those reactions. One of the agents for one of the actors came to see it. And then she wrote me afterwards and she said she was in tears and she backed her car into a pole And then the next day she was like, I'm going to change my whole life. And you're like, well, that's not going to be the standard response. I mean, you know, what's his name? David Camby from New Yorker is not going to say that. But if just some of that can get through, I think we're at kind of a triage point in our culture, our collective culture at this moment where we all know uh, rampant income inequality is destroying our country. We all know that information warfare is destroying our country, but most of all, the climate. And what we're doing to it is, is really just a story that's beyond even the most casual comprehension. So I think you kind of make a a, a movie like this as kind of a, and this will only appeal to about, I'm going to say 11% of the audience, uh, a Fran Tarkenton Hail Mary. Uh, Hey, that's that's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) You know Fran Tarkenton? Of course. (laughs) Uh, Fran Tarkenton was a scrambling quarterback for the Vikings in the 70s and 80s, used to heave up Hail Marys, and there would be Ahmad Rashad actually had one of the great catches. Anyway, um, sorry, I apologize, everyone. That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. Um, So I I want to sidestep, uh, I want to talk about craft just for a second, because I feel like when people talk to you about your work, 
uh, we don't talk as much about, about craft. And I think the craft in these last three films is really interesting. And the DP on this film, um, Linus, I'm not going to butcher his last name, DP of uh, La La Land and, and many other really beautiful films. I think you guys do something really interesting in the way you aesthetically approach telling other story because it is a comedy, you know, but it's also this really serious movie about some very real things we're dealing with. And again, you guys find this really lovely balance. We were talking outside about what you were watching when you were making this film. I think these people would like to hear some of that stuff as well. Yeah. So, you know, you have to, when you're making a film like this, you have to go back and look at all the great films and the ones that were really inspiring to me were Ace in the Hole. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, the Buck Henry one, To Die For, I love. Uh, and obviously, Dr. Strangelove, Network, all these movies. And what you realize what they do. Well, first off, it's weird. And I don't know if you agree with this, Barry. Isn't it weird that like there aren't a lot of movies like that anymore? And then because they're tough went, to pull off. I mean, right? When I went back and looked at it, I think the last one was the, I'm trying to remember, like I, it was like 20, 25 years ago. And um, so we looked at all those movies. Also, I realized The Graduate is a satire, which I never knew. I watched The, Gra- uh, the Graduate for my entire life. And then I went back and watched it. I was like, oh, it's a satire of middle-class American white life. So- what I liked about all those films and especially network, which Barry works with, uh, we have the same composer, Nick Bertel and Nick Bertel and I routinely talk about how gr- the uh, network might be the greatest movie ever made. And if you, I mean, it, yeah. I, Shout out to it network. It feels good to applaud that. It's weird. More of you aren't applauding that. <laughs> I, I know you like back to the, future too, but, uh, or another stakeout, but, uh, no, uh, (laughs) network is just tremendous. And I loved what they did where there was an artistic kind of Sidney Lumet vibrancy to the way it was shot. Um, but yet a playfulness. So when I worked with Linus, I told him, I was like, do the black blacks. Don't back off for comedy. Do it all artful, yet it should always have a vibrancy to it. And then the other key was we shot on film. And I just am a big believer of shoot on film. It's just, it gives a life, a texture to what you're doing. And especially with a movie like this that you need. You know, it's interesting because I was trying to draw you out a little bit. As I was watching the film, I could, and I watched it at home, not in a theater here. I have a, I have a room big enough, but certainly not. I didn't, didn't do it justice. But because I was watching it in the same place that I watched the election results come in and the same place I've been watching all these different things over the last four or five years, I start, I was like, I know this is fiction. I know Adam wrote this, but holy shit, why does it feel like this is, oh, this has happened. It's literally, I'm, your thesis was proved out. This is happening right now. And so I'm reminded of this Jane Coaston uh, uh, op-ed that just ran about the knowledge bubble, you know, that we sometimes find ourselves slipping into in the, this very simple, you know, look up, don't, just look up and don't look up. I was like, 
oh my God, how many of those slogans have we heard over the last four or five years? Aesthetically, I felt like you you took the film and working with this really brilliant cinematographer who has a, a very clear aesthetic, you guys sort of drift into this place where I stop realizing I'm watching this fiction film and I'm like, oh, this is the shit I've been watching for the last five years, or as you said, for the last 10 years, for the last 20 years, for the last 30 years. I, I just want you to I want you to own up to the intentionality of that because I think what you what you're doing with this movie is just so damn extraordinary. You know, it's very subtle and nuanced, but it's extraordinary. Yeah. So there's you know what's crazy about what we've lived through, and most of you probably know this, and I'm sure Barry, you know this, is none of it's by accident. Uh, we we've tried to call it out in our other movies like Vice and The Big Short. There's a lot of money billions of dollars spent manipulating the way people see reality. And it's funny, I've been listening to this podcast. I don't know if anyone else has heard it. It's called The Fall of Civilizations. Holy shit. Was the same thing? No, no, no. The episode on the the Inca and the Maya yes, and the Aztec. Yes. Oh, yeah. You you got to this. No, not planned. Not a plot. You got to listen to this podcast. This guy has the softest English voice, and he puts these strings on it. He's talking about really dark, shit, but it's amazing. No, I no, have legit. no idea. Same thing. This same is crazy. Thing. Same We've thing. Never not talked a plan. about this. Not a plan. Not a plan. So I, I, my daughter is a history major. Mm. She just applied to UCLA, and she told me. And she knows I love history. Dad, you got to hear this. And I listened to it. I can't believe you know this podcast. The one on the Songhai Empire is also Oh, my God. Well, how about the Khmer? Right, we should get back to the Q&A. I'm sorry. How about the Khmer <laughs> Empire, too? I, I, I haven't gotten to that one yet. I haven't gotten I to that one I love the Khmer Empire because the white Europeans, like, showed up in Khmer and they were like, there's no way that non-whites did this. This had to have been whites. And they were like, no, no fucking Cambodians did this and like over and over. Anyway, the it's an incredible Inc- podcast. Like really amazing, really amazing. And, and, but the three things you see over and over again, and, and correct me on this, are it's either climate change, mm-hmm. it's a new technology coming from an outside source, mm-hmm. or it's income inequality, mm-hmm. yep. right? Never and does. it's those three Every single time. And we're talking about the Sumerian Mm city-states, which are the first civilizations that we've ever had. We're talking about the Assyrian Empire. We're talking about the Persian Empire. We're going up to the the Roman Empire. We're going to Britannia, Mm -hmm. Rome. And every single time... It's those three things. Yeah. And it, it, it's like 13 episodes. Every episode is an entire civilization. So you can really take these things down. It's like, holy shit, I can't believe this, man. It's crazy. Bruh. It's crazy. I don't know anybody else who's listened to this. so good. It's so good. So right. so, good. So, but, but back to the Q&A. I'm sorry. I'm but sorry. what's startling about it, mm-hmm. right, Barry, is mm-hmm. that it's three things over and over and over and over again. And I feel like right now in America, we like with information warfare, we're so 
clueless. Mm. It kind of feels like the moment where like the longbow was invented and we think like a bird is attacking our back. Mm. Like we have no idea how you know, information warfare works. It, it, and it's weird because I, I've been, shit, I promise we'll get back to the q and I promise. We're not but, going to. But, but I had it's the same thought. Happen. I had the you same thought. I was, at that's, why, that's why I think the Rylands character is so interesting. That scene with the kids is Scary! Oh my God, that little girl is that line improv or not improv? Improv. Ah, that that was me it. off mic going. Say, Mark, tell her that you know. Yeah. Oh my improv. goodness! Yeah. All right. So anyway, so I, I these these cats and they're all dudes. I'm, I'm just like the optimist in me just wants to go. They at some point thought, oh, we're gonna create the situation where you can find any piece of information you want on the internet. It's going to free everyone up. It's going to make every and the exact opposite has happened because now you can silo yourself into only the information that you want to receive or that you feel is correct. Or blah, blah, blah. So I wrote it down. I mean, when you think about it, we really did have everything, didn't we? And by the way, that line, we really did have everything, didn't we? Improvised. Oh my God. So man. Leonardo man. DiCaprio comes up Please to clap. me. Please clap. Somebody got that one. <laughs> By the way, Leo comes up to me. We're shooting that scene on that night. He goes, I feel like. Leo, by the way, I don't think DiCaprio gets enough credit mm. as like a film student, like a guy who's worked with Scorsese, a guy who's seen every movie ever made. And he came up to me and he was like, you have to have a great line to end this moment. And I was like, well, I kind of think Jen's moment where she goes, we tried. I think that's it. And he goes, I just, I was trying this line. We, when you think about it, we really did have everything. And I was with my tough ass Texas script supervisor slash co-producer Kate Hardman and both of us just started like tears came out of her eyes. And I was like, yeah, yeah, do that. And then we put it in. And then even then we resisted putting it in the movie until the very end, because it was so powerful. We were kind of, you know, that moment when you're making a movie where you're like, is this powerful or over the top? Mm -hmm. And you have to kind of decide that moment and it was DiCaprio came in and he was like, why haven't you tried that line? And I was like, all right, we're going to try it. And then we put it in and we screened it. And I was like, holy shit. Um, so yeah, credit to the cast. You guys know Jonah Hill. He improvises like crazy. He has tons of lines. Meryl's an amazing improviser. It was uh, a crazy movie as far as the amount of improv. Yeah, I actually want to chase that for a second because, you know, uh, different than The Big Short and uh, in Vice, maybe a different, I want to say similar, this one's got like a ticking clock. It's almost like there's some genre elements that have to that have to work, uh, uh, be in play. And so you kind of have to have this roadmap that you're always on to a certain degree. I've heard stories about some 16-minute cut of a scene that you guys just riffed for two days. And, and I'm just trying to figure out, again, balance. You know, how can you allow yourself to be Adam McKay, the king of improvisers, the prince of improv, and yet you got to kind of stay on this map because the shit you're working towards, that line at the end, this comet, the, the ship turning around, you kind of got to be on schedule with all those things. 
Yeah, that was the craziest. It was the first uh, Oval Office scene. And I told Hank Corwin, who's one of the most brilliant editors, by the way, if you ever... Who ended up in the film, I noticed. What's that? He's in the film. He is. Yeah, You're yeah. right. And he's he's right. It's like he's getting married or something. It's, it's like- actually a moment where a couple is looking at their old wedding video and their old wedding video is Hank Corwin, our editor, actually marrying his current wife, Nancy, towards the end of the world. Very good. That's someone who knows Hank. It was a, it's a heavy film, man. It, it, it took it from, hey, this is fun to, oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, we talked about, wait, what were we just... I was saying with all the improv, this movie, it's kind of like a genre film. It's a ticking clock, you know, the 60 day or six, six months, the thing is coming. And then we got to get up on the, the first thing and it's got to turn around. You kind of got to stay on schedule. And so I'm, you're in there with, with these actors and they're all really great and brilliant, but you kind of got to somehow keep the, the, the train moving towards the station, like just balancing that out, but also giving people the freedom to do what they do. I mean, I think with this group of actors, you can tell they all have a sense of someone just told me recently the expression when it comes to green berets or uh, uh, Navy SEALs, they have a thing called a rock list. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard this? I have not heard this. I have not heard this. Someone either. in the I, audience has heard this, though. Has the person, the one person who knew who Frank Tarkenton was. We're all directors. Oh. I saw a little tentative hand go up here. But anyway, what it means is situational awareness. And I really think that's why the actors that Barry gets in his movies or the actors I was lucky enough to have in this movie are so great because they have a constant situational awareness. Mm -hmm. And I really learned a lot personally about that, that if you remember kind of where you are and what's going on, uh, it really can change the way you make decisions. But when you see like Timothy Chalamet or good Lord, I mean, Meryl Streep's improv chops are off the charts Jonah Hill, we already know, is incredible. Uh, Rob Morgan, like all of them have the, and, and I think it's a key for acting. I think situational awareness is kind of a, a center thing. I think with directing, we know it's an important thing. I think it, it's kind of the description of directing is situational awareness. But when you get actors as good as the ones we were lucky enough to have in this movie, Uh, you really see that come to play. When I was in film school, a professor said to me, uh, because I was really obsessed with Godard, and this this asshole professor, I'm sorry, I know this is going to be a podcast at some point, said to me, Godard is a terrible filmmaker because he thinks films can change the world, and he's wrong. And it broke my heart, man. Yeah, I was 20 years old. It broke my heart. Well, I'm not going to say because I do love my film school. And, and that professor then left. Before, but I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. Everybody knows I went to Florida State. So this is at Florida State University. Um, but so your last three films, you, you clearly, you give a shit. You really give a shit. Do you believe that films so change the world? here's the, the story. Here's the story that I just heard four hours ago. And I was wondering this same question that Barry is asking because we all got to relax. Like, right, we're making movies, TV shows, they have an impact. But I mean, come on. 
And I just heard this podcast by John Ronson uh, about how the beginning of the evangelical movement came out of the 70s. And it was this guy who was like in Switzerland or Sweden, I can't remember where, and he had a son and they were kind of like pot smoking, born again Christians. And his son was like 17 and had just had a baby. And he, Roe versus Wade was passed. And he said, well, that's screwed up. I mean, I just had a baby and like, why are they doing this? And he started making films and he started making films and he was like, this is wrong. And he went all around America. He went to Jerry Falwell. Mm -hmm. He went to all the right wing people we think of. And they were like, dude, you're crazy. That's the Catholic church. This is a loser issue. And eventually they started to like went towards his way and his films created the entire right-wing evangelical movement that we live with today. And he later, the weird thing is, he his name's Schaefer. I think it's Jim Schaefer. And he later went on to Hollywood to direct four or five films, and he regrets everything he's done. And he spent his whole life trying to reverse it. Am I saying this film will have that impact? Of course not. But if you doubt the power of media, of film, of narrative, I mean, what that guy did, it changed the whole course of history and and he did it by accident. And the only reason I bring this up is I, without exaggeration, I heard this three hours ago. Mm. So I, I just off the freshness of it. And, and I think we've seen, when you look back at all of history, you look at the 1960s with the bodies being brought back from Vietnam. And then you look at the second Iraq war and they were like, don't show the bodies. Or you look at the 60s and you see the fire hoses turned on the civil rights protesters. And then you see corporate media correct itself. These kinds of narratives are really, really powerful and they can really change the way we think. I I think collectively we all uh, act off of these kind of narratives. So I don't think this movie is going to be the movie that's going to like change the narrative. But at the same time, uh, the same way Barry's done with his beautiful, beautiful movies, I think we all have to dive in and go for the moment. It's so there is a this is embarrassing, but there is a, a picture of me <laughs> directing Moonlight uh, right outside this theater. Because uh, as I was as I was watching your film, I was thinking, uh, or after I'd watched it, I thought of Moonlight. I was a little bit not jealous is not the right word because we're friends, and I would never say that I'm, I'm jealous of you. But I just loved how the breadth of this film, like the the, the largeness of everything it's speaking to. I think I've done a really good job critiquing myself now of really just focusing on one very small, succinct thing and just dramatizing the hell out of that, putting a magnifying glass on it. You just put so much in this film. It just feels like a, like a uniter in this way, because I think there's just, it, it applies to so, to every human being on the face of the earth, to every animal on the face of the earth. Now, 
it's a heavy film and it's a little bit dark and all these things. But there's one moment in it that just stays with me. It's where the, it's, I don't know if you were referencing January 6th or not, but it feels like, again, am I watching January? Did he take a camera to, to, to January 6th? Like, what am I watching? And then, again, don't look up. Finally, someone looks up and there's this evidence that everyone on earth can see. Holy shit, we've been lied to. The rich guy who turned the plane around, turned the spaceship around. No, he, he, he didn't. He couldn't blow. He said he could blow the thing. He couldn't blow the thing up. Finally, everyone theoretically is united because fake news, facts are turning off all this. Shit. The thing is up there and it's coming for all of us. It's weird for me. It was a very hopeful moment, a very hopeful moment. I'm going to pat you on the back and bat and say this movie is kind of that or it could be that. I hope it will be that. Is, is it your hope that it maybe could be that in some way? Without a doubt. I mean, like the real truth is we have the science. We have it. We have renewables. We have carbon capture. We have carbon uh, removal, which, by the way, is the key. Carbon removal is really everything. And so, yeah, I, I think ultimately we really tried to show in this film that we're all being gamed to some point. And clearly the right wing is being gamed in the anti-science sort of blame the other side kind of thing. But also let's be for real, man. We've been been voting for these corporate Dems for 40 years and they have been screwing us over like Bill Clinton, you know, uh, you know, now we're looking at Joe Manchin. Now we're looking at cinema. We're looking Obama did not bust the bankers. And I think at a certain point, you know, hopefully with this movie, we can and we tried to do it. We tried to go after everyone. Uh, Leo's character is a kind of incrementalist, neoliberal. Jen is the kind of marginalized, progressive, uh, clearly chickless, and the president are kind of the opportunists on the right wing. Some, somehow Timmy gets off scot-free. He, he's the one Teddy's guy. the coolest. He's the, Teddy's the coolest. Guy. Timmy gets off scot-free. He's, he's clean. He's the bureaucrat. I mean, Teddy, in a weird way, Rob Morgan, is kind of the rudder for the whole entire movie, if you really pay attention to him. Um, uh, I, by the way, we just did our Lakers show for HBO with Rob Morgan, and I was like, this guy is incredible. Uh, one of my favorite Actors, But yeah, we tried to give shots at everyone. I had a friend of mine the other day who was talking to me, who's like an old buddy who's like, dude, I'm like trying to do podcasts here and you're giving me shit. I'm like, if you notice in the end with Chris Evans, we give Hollywood shit. Like Mm. we're giving all of us shit. Like the system is broken. It's been profitized. It's about clicks. It's about views. It's about sort of emotional reactions. I call it the, you know, slot machinification of American culture. And that's really what's happened to us. And then we're at this extinction level event. And then I just said all that. And then at the end of it, I have to laugh. It's it's hilarious that ultimately it's like pineapples and cherries and, and we have a gin and tonic and we're, you know, at a casino in Las Vegas. 
That sounds awesome. Um, with that, they're right? telling me we are out of time. So my name is Barry Jenkins. This is Adam McKay. The movie is Don't Look Up. The podcast is the fall of civilizations. <laughs> hey, if you dug this movie and it seemed like you did, please tell a friend, tell He's a friend, right. tell a friend. Fall of civilizations. It's amazing. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 